Apartheid was essentially affirmative action for white people at its best. At its worst, it was a crime against humanity. But at its best, it was affirmative action for white people. And so when you now put in legislative requirements that say you will hire black people, you will make sure that people of color are taken seriously in the workplace, etc. What that created was a really untenable situation in organizations. Absolutely. Our constitution talks a lot about equality. In layman's terms, what became popular was about treating everyone the same if we bring in affirmative action. Then it's reverse racism. Then we're treating black people better. We want to get to a place where everyone can be treated equally. But to get there, we actually need to cater for what people need now. How do we work across difference in organizations that have never had to think about difference? When you say, how do I share this space with you? That is the most powerful question that we can ask. Yes, yes. My name is Lovelyn Waday, and to me, belonging means believing me. Believing my experiences as I share them with you, even if you don't see it the same way, but believing that it is real for me. That's what belonging means to me. Oh my gosh, Loveland, mm. welcome to the studio. It is so incredibly awesome to have you here. Thank you for having me. So I actually met you in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the boot camp. Mm-hmm. And um, I think maybe fast forward a year, maybe you were, you reached out later and said, hey, are you open to doing some coaching? Yes. We did some coaching. Yes. But in that coaching, and this is why I want to, to have you on the show, mm. I learned who you are. Mm. Mm. And in that learning, my heart swelled and broke simultaneously. Mm. Your childhood experiences mm were ineffable, Mm. unfathomable. Mm. And I came to also learn what you did in South Africa. Mm. You were born in Nigeria. You grew up in in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And you had your own D&I, Diversity and Inclusion Consulting Company, and was doing some amazing work Mm. in South Africa. And I would love to hear the story and share all of the... Um, highlights and lows mm. of those experiences. Mm. Mm. Ha, where do I begin? <laughs> um, I mean, I will say one of the things that was really important to me when I started my consulting firm uh, was to make sure that people understood that it was a social justice consulting firm mm. rather than a firm about DEI work. Okay. Um, and people who've worked with me know that I very strongly, um, encourage us to talk more about transformation, equity, and belonging, Mm. rather than talking about diversity, equality, and inclusion, Mm. which for the longest time had been the phrasing people were using in South Africa, diversity, equality, inclusion, um, Because I think DEI in many ways is more cosmetic. What it calls us to is more cosmetic, more superficial. Whereas I think 
the actual work of transformation of equity of belonging requires us to pay attention to systems mm-hmm. and structures mm-hmm. um, and it it holds us to a higher standard mm-hmm. and so that's been my approach uh, in doing the work and that has landed well in some contexts and in other contexts it hasn't landed well i think precisely because it challenges like the core of what people think dei is meant to be what i loved during our pre-talk before we hit the record button mm. was how you started to talk about the black empowerment mm. element of mm. this whole DEI mm. movement, if you mm. will, in South mm. Africa and how it actually came to mm. be. Mm. I would love for you to, mm. you know, share that mm. Um, mm. because I think it's a very different experience than in the United States, for, mm. for example. Um, and, you know, across, across many, many tech companies have international offices in EMEA and APAC, but it's different across the globe. Yes. So I think the important context here is to say, so South Africa has this history of apartheid and colonialism, just a small little blip in our history. And um, after 1990, so the official fall of apartheid, 1990, 1994 is the first democratic vote in South Africa. Mm. Many things were put in place. Um, A new constitution was uh, put in place. Uh, And with that was legislation that required uh, Mm. companies in South Africa uh, to put in place various um, initiatives around affirmative action. Uh, And later on, I think it was 99, 2000, was the Black Economic Empowerment Act. Mm. And that act was um, an act that basically required companies to formally report on and get rated by the government on the progression and the representation of black people in senior leadership in those organizations. Um, And so those would have to be publicly declared. And in a history where uh, for the longest time, black people were either not allowed to participate in the economy or when they did participate in the economy, it was in very specific roles. Uh, Now you've got a situation post-94 where suddenly we've got to hire all these black people and work with them Mm -hmm. in predominantly white-owned companies, white-owned firms, um, and white-owned companies and firms who really owned the space of what it means to be economically active. Exactly. Who owned the relationship with government, who owned the relationship with various industries. And so a lot of the time, the initial entry point into what we today call diversity DEI work was actually around change management. Mm. We've got to hire all these black people. This is awkward. We've got to hire all these people of color. What do we do? How do we work across difference in organizations that have never had to think about difference, Mm. right? In spaces that never had to think about difference. And you layer this with the fact that under apartheid, I always say to people, Apartheid, if I'm to be generous about it, apartheid was essentially mm. affirmative action for white people at its best. Wow. At, it wor- at its worst, it was a crime against humanity. But at its best, it was affirmative action for white people. And so wow. when you now put in wow. legislative requirements that say you will hire black people, you will make sure that they are um, uh, progressing in your organizations, you will make sure 
that people of color are taken seriously in the workplace, etc. Women as well. So it wasn't just about mm-hmm. black people. It extended to women and other marginalized groups, but it was mostly around race. Um, what that created was a really untenable situation in organizations. Absolutely. Because what? <laughs> and so, right, because literally the person who served you t- tea and coffee, because that was all they would allow black women to do, for example, or the person who only took notes in the meeting now has to be trained, prepared, taken seriously to also participate in decision-making. So all of the DI work as we know it today Mm -hmm. emerges out of the space of change management, team effectiveness, collaboration, and those are the euphemisms we were using in South Africa, right, to navigate this work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as we entered the 2000s, where the conversations about transformation became a lot more prominent, where it was like, we're not just talking about affirmative action, we're talking about transformation, and transformation became a conversation about ownership. Mm. So the levels of ownership that people of color, that women had in organizations, which changes the game completely, because now we're talking about structures and systems. And power. And power, right? Um, and that over and influence, time, true. and influence, decision-making power, yeah. ownership, authority, etc. Mm. And that over time is what a lot of DEI work has had to try to tackle in a South African context. Um, But in South Africa, we're really good at papering over the truth. And so the euphemism uh, was always diversity, difference, equality, rainbow nation. That's another one people hear a lot about Mm -hmm. South Africa, right? Right. Rainbow nation, we're all different, we're all special. Um, And so part of my work has been to really challenge people to think about when you talk about diversity, what are you talking about? Are you talking about just adding difference into the mix? Or are you talking about transformation, which says, let's look at the cultural architecture of this environment. What needs to shift? What needs to change so that the diversity you have here can thrive? Or when we talk about equality, equality is a big one in South Africa. People care a lot about equality because our history was one where we were treated unequally. White people were treated differently to black people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Women were treated differently to men. So equality felt like something we should be aspiring to, right? And it's in our constitution. Our constitution talks a lot about equality. And uh, of course, lawyers will know it goes more into like substantive equality, you know, what is actual equality. But again, in, in in layman's terms, what became popular was about treating everyone the same. And actually became something that many um, leaders and many white people actually used to weaponize against affirmative action legislation. Say, oh, but we're not treating everyone the same if we bring in affirmative action. We're treating, then it's reverse racism. Then we're treating black people better. And so I always ask people to think about what is equity? When we talk about equity, we're talking about fairness, which means that we need to cater to the different needs that people have. There we go. Not just catering to treating everyone the same so that it looks good. And so I always think about equality as being aspirational. We want to get to a place where everyone can be treated equally, but to get there, we actually need to cater for what people need now so that we can get to a place where we can treat everyone the same, where there is no more inequity. Um, And then the last one, and then I'll be quiet, is around inclusion. So this one is a buzzword, right? Inclusion, 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 inclusion. So I was one of the 
I think our year group when I started primary school uh, was I think the third or fourth group that was allowed of children of color who were allowed to go to white schools. Mm. So under apartheid, our schools were segregated, right? Public mm-hmm. schools were segregated. Private schools got on board a little bit earlier because they sort of self-managed. But public schools were fully segregated. And so in the late early ni- late 80s, early 90s, when we were allowed to start going to white, previously white schools, um, uh, it was a thing of you are, we've opened the door for you. We've opened the gates. We've let the brown children in. That is inclusion. Someone has to do the including into something. But there's no accounting for power. Because if someone needs to do the including into something, then you're saying to me that there's a way in which this is not mine. You're saying this is my space. Who am I letting in? That's a conversation about inclusion. And so I always encourage people to think about belonging, which is really, this is our space, how are we going to share it? And so much of what came with the experience of being included as a little black child post-apartheid in white South African schools was, oh, but we let you into the space, but now you must be like us. Change your accent. Why do you talk that way? I would watch kids giggle and laugh at how my parents spoke. So I learned from an early age. Mm. When I left home, I would leave home as Lovelyn, as my parents call me. When I get to school, I'm Lovelyn. Oh, wow. With my hair, I learned from an early age that I needed to straighten my hair, I needed to relax my hair. Our school rules told us that black hair in an Afro form was untidy. So you needed to look neat. And neat meant you needed to look white, as Mm. close to white as possible, right? Mm. That's inclusion, which actually in the South African context is more about assimilation. Of course. But belonging really asks us to investigate the question, how much of myself do I need to leave behind at home in order to exist here? How much of myself am I leaving behind? Am I having to leave behind my culture, the things that really make me, my culture, my family, my accent, the things Mm. that are important to me? I've got to leave that behind Mm. for you to accept me into the space. And so from an early age, I think I really learned that assimilation and belonging cannot coexist. You cannot have those two things together. You either belong or you assimilate. And I think inclusion is cute because we can get away with assimilation. But belonging asks a much, much bigger question. How are we going to share the space, baby? So first of all, I've never heard that. And it is genius and amazing. And I am going to be using it all the time now and giving you full credit, 100%. Um, this, you know, how I'll thread this back to organizations mm. of what you just said is assimilation is fitting in, mm-hmm. in a culture, mm-hmm. in an organizational culture. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was, uh, just speaking on a panel this morning where this Latino had to constantly fit in to, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, wherever it was in the U S and in organizations. And I didn't have a chance to say it because we just kind of went down a different, mm. different, um, trajectory in the conversation. But what I always say when that comes up in the courses and facilitation that I'm doing, fitting in is about not being excluded. Mm. Fitting in is making sure Mm. I'm not rejected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fitting in is doing everything I can 
to not hurt. Yes. To be part of. Mm. Mm. And it is the antithesis of mm-hmm. belonging. Right, the opposite of belonging, I always say, is exclusion. Mm. Fitting in is exclusion. Right, mm. it's, it's I can't I can't be who I am. I can't be the way that my name is pronounced. Yes, Th- things that I get all the time. I would say probably three to four times a week is I'll get on a Zoom call and someone will ask me a question and say, "Hey, Raj." While my name is fully spelled out, actually twice on my Zoom call or whatever the Zoom name, mm. right? So when you say Sitting with difference. The thing that I say all the time in the last six months now is the number one leadership skill to have is not empathy. The number one leadership skill to have is not active listening. Mm. The number one leadership skill to have is sitting in discomfort, Mm. Mm. which is exactly what you're saying. Mm. How do we sit in difference? And how do we hold that difference, and I'm going to bring this up again, with dignity? Yes. 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 Shireen Daniels, who wrote the book Anti-Racist Organization. Love her. Love Shireen. um, Defines anti-racism as the redistribution of power. How Mm. do you define anti-racism? I like Shireen's definition. The redistribution of, let's go with it, (laughs) the redistribution of power, absolutely. How did that happen or has it, or is it continuing to unfold or unfurl in South Africa in organizations? Oh my goodness, Um, that is a hard one. So I think that there are, the first thing to say is that power exists in different ways. Yeah. So I think that there are certain parts of South Africa where power is shifting for sure. And then there are certain other forms of power it's not. So I'll give you an example. If we think about uh, power uh, in terms of like epistemic power, right? Power and knowledge. In our school system in South Africa, our education is still incredibly Eurocentric. So you have a country that is 80% black or 90% black that is educating its children to still believe that that which comes from the West and from the North, that which comes from outside of them is better than them, right? And so when we think about our curricula in South Africa, how we teach, so the modes of learning that we elevate in South Africa We do not elevate indigenous knowledge. We do not elevate indigenous forms of learning. We do not elevate indigenous content. So the forms of learning that we elevate in South Africa are still incredibly Western, incredibly Eurocentric. And so we are still producing children who will become the adults of tomorrow who still believe that that which is white is right. So a big part of the work for me has been with schools and with educators has been to really challenge the, um, I almost want to say the programming that informs our approach to education. And so this is where people hear, oh, we want to decolonize education. And they think it means we don't want to teach children about you know, European philosophy or European inventions. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is we want to make sure that when you are educating children in Africa, you are also educating them about Africa in such a way that they think of Africa and therefore think of themselves as whole 
as good, as innovative, as worthy, as equipped, as agents, as power, just as much as you would want to educate any other child in any other part of the world to come out with a wholesome self-identity. So in terms of epistemic knowledge stuff, we're not doing great there in South Africa. When we think about corporate South Africa, we still have a huge challenge. So numbers are looking better mm-hmm. in the sense that we do have a lot more black CEOs mm-hmm. um, in South Africa. So just for context in South Africa, when we say black, we generally mean all people of color. That's sort of like our general thing. Long political discussion about black consciousness. We don't have time for that today. But Wait, um, when's your flight back to Holland? <laughs> <laughs> I think we should talk until then. I don't then. know. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, we have a lot more CEOs of color. Let me put it that way, yeah. compared to white CEOs. However, and this is really important, when you look at the income distribution mm-hmm. in South Africa, Income distribution in South Africa is still heavily skewed in favor of white people. So the last accurate statistics I saw, so I know we're in 2023, we had the pandemic, 2020 till about 2022, so we haven't had good data collection. But the last stats I saw were the 2019 income inequality um, report that was done by Statistics SA. And at that time, uh, white South Africans were still earning three and a half times more than black South Africans. Indian South Africans were earning two rand 80 more than black South Africans. Then we have a group of South Africans who have mixed heritage. They are called colored. It is not a slur in South Africa. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Colored South Africans, the difference between what they were earning and what black South Africans were earning was 35 cents. So when you look at income, Above. Yeah, so 35, they were earning, for every one rand that black South Africans earned, colored South Africans were earning one rand 35. And so in terms of income, actual money in your pocket Mm. that enables you to make decisions on a day-to-day basis, to purchase the things you need to survive, to enable a quality of life, to put your children through school, to have a comfortable home, to have access to certain utilities, like that actual money in hand Uh, is still significantly skewed. So economically, we're doing very badly. And the difficult thing about this is that politically, we have a black government. So that's awkward. We have a black government that is in power. And I always say, this is where things went wrong post-1990. Because what we did was we said, hmm, Let's just put a whole lot of black people in government. We didn't think about the fact that, oh, these black people have been fighting for the last 50 years. So they're sitting with lots of trauma. These black people have been socialized into a system that tells them that white is right. So they're sitting with a whole lot of internalized oppression. Absolutely. So we're not talking about the fact that the black leaders we have in politics, and this is where, you know, this is where it gets difficult. So I'm I'm going to try to say this very succinctly. Whilst we have a black government, as in the majority of people in decision-making roles within our legislature are black, within the cabinet are black, Mm -hmm. the bulk of them in terms of their mindset... It's just going there with you. I was just going to say that. In terms of their mindset are still deeply colonized. And in fact, their highest aspiration is to be as close to white as possible. This reminds me so poignantly of the story that I often share 
when I discovered Resma, someone had forwarded the interview with him and Krista Tippett on On love, Being. Love. That on 90 minute love interview. And so I started listening to it because epigenetics, of course. And I was on my treadmill and Resma <laughs> says that basically every body of color is juxtaposed mm. against a white body. Mm-hmm. And at that moment that he said that, I fell off my treadmill onto the floor and I started sobbing because mm. it finally made sense about why I am constantly comparing mm. myself to straight white men and aspire to be a straight white man, which can never happen. And what you're sharing about this black government in South Africa is the internalized oppression of the juxtaposition of the mindset of comparing oneself to who they are authentically with who they are trying to be because that's the structure of belonging. Mm. 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 Resma talks about, this is something that you and I adore when he says this, trauma decontextualized in a society becomes culture. Mm. Trauma decontextualized in a family becomes family traits. Mm. Trauma decontextualized in a person becomes personality yes. traits. Yes. What is really coming to the fore for me as I'm listening to you and hearing all the things that you're sharing, I'm just so riveted, is I'm coming back to power. And more specifically, power over. Yes. Yes. And more specifically, and I'm getting really emotional. Mm the trauma that is insidious with power over. When I talk about when I talk about trauma and the hemispheres mm. from the boot camp, so much of who we are and what we carry is in our bodies. Mm. Bessel van der Kolk talks about this at, at length um, in his book, A Body Keeps Score. Mm-hmm. Gabor Mate talks about this, mm. especially in his new book, uh, The Myth of Normal. Mm. When you worked in schools, mm. you must have seen so much trauma and the power over, mm-hmm. which is a core tenet of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And every single one of us is subsumed in this white supremacy Mm. system. Mm. Talk about what it was like for you to be part of the experience of working with schools, Mm. how that was for you, Mm. and how that may have related to any personal experiences. Mm. Oh, my goodness. So for context, in 2020... After the murder of George Floyd, uh, South African students uh, in mostly formerly white-only public schools and also mostly white private schools that now have a solid population of students of color in them, uh, these students started sharing stories Mm. of their experiences. Some of them were children still in school. Others were alumni of these institutions. So I'm talking adults who are like, here's what this moment with George Floyd is bringing up for me. Oh, wow. I remember when I was 15. Oh, wow. And so-and-so said this or did that. I remember when Mrs. So-and-so 
humiliated me in front of this class because of my hair. I remember when, so you had this wave across generations of adults of color and children of color sharing their experiences of racism, of discrimination uh, from when they were in these schools. Mm -hmm. And the consequence was an absolute dumpster fire. Because what happened was most of our schools in South Africa, so especially our sort of well-to-do schools, have very strong colonial roots, yeah. right? So most of them are saint so-and-so and, uh, you know, old king so-and-so. That's the names of these schools. So it's deeply rooted in the uh, British uh, colonial sort of history. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've got reputations to protect. They've got hundreds of years of tradition to protect. They've got they've got a lot of a lot at stake for them, and so to have children and adults say, "Hey, y'all are racist," mm -hmm. was so jarring for them mm -hmm. because actually, what it was was saying, "Hey, you've done harm, and you've done harm to children." Yeah, and so working in these schools, just to the point about power over, I think one of the hardest things to watch for me was to watch people uh, be more interested in how the short stories were shared. Because a lot of the stories were shared on social media, via like anonymous posts. Some posts had names of like, this is my story I'm going to tell you. But some of the posts were shared on social media. Some were shared within alumni communities. So basically there was like a round robining of like, a series of submissions made and mm -hmm. then a formal submission made to the schools. Mm -hmm. And so the concern was more around how people brought their complaints up and why didn't you say it years ago? Why are you only saying it now? And why are you doing it on social media? And also like, actually that's not the context. Oh no, that's not how it happened. So there was a lot of like still trying to protect their own position right. rather than leaning into the discomfort of, it doesn't matter that for you, those were the school rules that you were applying at the time. Harm has been done here. How do we repair it? Right. And so what you saw was a whole spectrum. There were people who were very, um, the word coming to mind is contrition. So there were schools who really wanted to make right and repair. And then there were schools who were just like, let's go all the way. Let's take this to court. You will prove to me how this is a microaggression and how this is racist. And unless the constitution of South Africa tells me that what I did was wrong, I'm not interested in what you've got to say. Because all of it was about protecting, and this is the thing about white supremacy, white supremacy likes to look good. White supremacy does not like being exposed. White supremacy does not like being called what it is, right? And so in the name of discipline, Right, schools would justify racist behavior. In the name of decorum, schools would justify racist behavior. In the name of uh, I'm the adult in the classroom, you're the child, school, schools would justify racist behavior. And to be honest, I have an element of compassion because the truth is after 1994, where mostly, because most of our teaching force in these schools are white women, Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I have a level of compassion because after 94, there was no intentional program to recalibrate their mindsets about what it now means to be in a classroom 
with children from different backgrounds mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. children who are now having a voice. Yeah. Right? And so there was a lot to navigate around what is it that you actually believe about black people that you are now projecting onto black children. And so for me, the most, I almost want to say like the most triggering part of this work has been working with schools to see black children as children. Oh my gosh. That's been the most triggering part of this work. Oh my gosh. To see black children as children. Not to see black children as black. I want you to see black children as children. Because in the same way that you're okay with Mary being a little bit loud, being a little bit disruptive in class, what's different when Nokutula is is noisy and disruptive in class? That's what children do. Or in the same way that, for example, you would want to pay attention to... um, uh, um, I'm thinking, for example, like with names pronouncing children's names properly. Mm-hmm. Why, why would you think that it's okay to just give a child of color a nickname because you can't pronounce it? Yeah. Why? Because you think you're in power, you're in charge. Your reality is the only one that counts. Right. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. But yeah, that was, that was really hard. There's so much to pull from here. I, I don't even know where to go. I, I, I'm going to completely go in a different okay, direction. Pivot. Let's pivot. And so... I want to take a huge detour here, throw you a curveball, and get super spicy. Like, we've been spicy. I want to dial the, the knob up of spice here. Gandhi spends quite a bit of time in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, being half Indian, I have a lot of issues with Gandhi. Mm. Talk about Gandhi in the context in the context of South Africa? So um, there are ways in which Gandhi's work and contribution um, has impacted so many people. Sure. So I don't want to take away from that. And what makes Gandhi tricky for me is that in the South African context, Gandhi was very much about the um, liberation and protection of Indian people. Yeah. Gandhi was not about the liberation and protection of all humans. And so what I struggle with is in the South African context, and I don't want to misquote the, you know, the date or the phrase, but I know, for example, that in the early 19, I want to say like 19 something, 20s, 30s, 40s, I don't know, around there, there was a whole movement around like, um, uh, the rights of Indians in South Africa, yeah. right, at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gandhi was very active in terms of protecting Indian workers, right. even if it came at the cost of doing further harm or yeah. further disadvantaging black workers. And in fact, Gandhi was known to openly use the K-word, which is a slur uh, against black people in South Africa. So I'm not going to say it out loud, but it's K-A-F-F-I-R. It's a slur that was used against black people in South Africa. It is a word that we despise. Uh, we've never reclaimed that word. It's not like the N-word that some people are reclaiming and not claiming. No, no, the, we don't use the K-word. 
But Gandhi was known to use that word and use that language towards pe uh, black people in South Africa. So my concern or what concerns me about Gandhi is that in his time, you know, firstly, it's hard to make sense of Gandhi in 2023, given the context that he was in in the 19-whatever. But it's also the fact that where he commits himself to uh, only fighting for Indian people, being comfortable to use racial slurs against black people, not wanting the Indian and the native, which is what they call black people, uh, to be lumped into one category under apartheid legislation. He was very comfortable to be focused on what would benefit the Indian worker, even if it came at the expense of mm -hmm. black people. And yet when black people fight for liberation, when black people resist, it is often to the benefit of all, right? So it's hard for me to relate to Gandhi in the same way. And also I think that there were different things at stake for him, right? And this is where we talk about like Nelson Mandela pre-1964 and Nelson Mandela after 1964. Pre-1964, people talk about Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. Nelson Mandela was not about peaceful means and nonviolence. He was like, let's blow this up. Let's blow it up. Because for him it was like, how can I resist peacefully when like you are not meeting me unarmed, you're coming for me, like what am I gonna do, right? Post, post the Rivonia trial, post Mandela going to prison, he comes out as a man of peace. So for me, it's always hard sometimes to comment on historical figures because I know that I'm commenting from my own lens, from my own time, but at the same time, I don't wanna let them off the hook because my thing is a lack of solidarity is still a lack of solidarity, 100%. regardless of the time. Like in what way did it fit into your framework of what is good for humanity and what is dignity for humanity, in what way did that mean only Indian humanity for you? Like I we all it. need dignity. Do you know what I mean? So, so that's where I struggle. I struggle with him. I love it. Yeah. When I talk about, you know, this, there's so much here. Cults, rebel movements, gangs. I, I once heard an anecdote about what makes a community? And there was this really sweet anecdote that three people are on a train and they're all traveling in the direction together, obviously, because they're on a train. <laughs> and, um, are those three people in community at that moment? And the answer is, to the person telling the story, no, but the heater breaks. Mm. And now everyone's freezing in this train car, mm. and the three individuals in that particular car are now working together mm. to fix the heater mm. in whatever ways they can contribute. Mm. Community, when we have the experience of community, it neurochemically signals oxytocin. Mm. This is what community does. Mm. My sense is that when we have these cults, when we have these gangs, when we have these rebel movements, there comes a moment when the in-out group dynamic mm. is the forefront of purpose. Mm. Purpose secretes dopamine. Dopamine is a left hemisphere experience, which means that from the left hemisphere, we don't actually have a sense 
of relationality. We don't have a sense of relationship. We don't actually have a sense of who we are. The right hemisphere brings that lens of interconnectedness. It brings that lens of relationality. It brings the whole picture. It brings belonging. And so when we are in community, how do we vacillate between the left hemisphere of purpose mm. and the right hemisphere of belonging mm. so that we have all of the neurochemistry for us? When you say, how do I share this space with you? That is the most powerful question that we can ask in terms of foundationalizing and concretizing belonging in, in organizations. Mm. So when I think about belonging uh, and this question of how, how do I share this space with you, I think what comes to mind is an immediate acknowledgement like an immediate acknowledgement of, of each other's humanity, right? Mm -hmm. So by that I mean, like if I think of, you know, if you grow up, if you grow up with siblings, for example. So mm -hmm. when you grow up with siblings, one of the lessons parents teach their children or have to teach their children very early on is about sharing, right? Because kids mm -hmm. are quite selfish, so they can be quite selfish. And so you learn this lesson about sharing from very early on. Sharing doesn't always mean that if I've got two apples, I give you one apple and then we both always have one apple. Sometimes sharing means knowing that, oh, actually, she hasn't had any apples all week. And I've been eating apples all the time. Actually, I have the whole bunch. I'm okay. Mm. This week. Mm -hmm. Next week, sharing means... uh oh, I've got, to, I've got to be at school at eight o'clock and you're only starting at work at three this afternoon. So actually, we need to prioritize the bathroom for you this morning. Mm. There's something about understanding that sh sharing and belonging and how we share space isn't, oh, I'm less, you're more. Belonging requires this intimate awareness and understanding of each other's needs mm -hmm. and a regular negotiation about how we collectively meet those needs. Do you know what I mean? So for me, like I try to also sometimes take the stuff out of like the super philosophical lens and like, let's just make it practical. When you've got roommates, right? We know that we're going to eat. We know that the dishes need to be washed. We know that, um, the house needs to be cleaned. We know that there are things that need to happen, but we also know that we have full lives. I've got a full-time job. You're full-time studying. So-and-so is doing this. So what often happens? You sit down with your roommates and like, I really hate doing the dishes. I really hate dishes. But I also know that actually I'm a brilliant cook. So if I take four nights a week to do the cooking, can you handle the dishes? Or actually this week, my schedule's a mess. Can you please help fill in for me here? And there's something I think at the core of it, the word coming to mind for me is like reciprocity, right? No one owns, no one owns the, the, a monopoly on that, right? 
all, all there's something about just recognizing like we all have needs let's be intentional about what does that mean and acknowledging that that's going to look different in different moments so this is why i get upset with organizations because what we what they often want is what must i do for black people to make them happy what must i do for women to make them happy and then once i've done those things why aren't the women feeling included why aren't the people of color feeling included because we think we just need to tick a few boxes as if these are not human beings whose needs are constantly changing mm. so what does it look like for us to embody that intentionality around paying attention to what people need also creating the environment where it's okay for people to verbalize what they need Mm -hmm. And let's see how we find each other in that. Mm -hmm. That's for me at the core of what sharing is. It's mm -hmm. not always 50-50. Sharing mm -hmm. isn't always 50-50, right? But the experience that we walk away with is that all of our humanity and all of our dignity is intact. I really could continue this conversation for quite some time with you. I have so many more questions. In, in closing this conversation, Lovelyn, You currently work for a tech company. Mm. You're based in Europe. Your heart is in South Africa. Mm. What are your hopes for organizations in South Africa in the next mm. 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Mm. Mm. Wow. What are my hopes? I would love to see us get to a place where at the center of business, schooling, faith, mm. at the center of all those exercises is humanizing each other. Mm -hmm. And I, by that I mean if we start the conversation from a place of like you're human you need the things i need <laughs> that informs conversations about minimum wage i am constantly flabbergasted every year when our industrial bodies negotiate with government around the legislative minimum wage and you will hear senior leaders pontificate about Oh, we can't pay too much of a high minimum wage because investors are going to run. Da -da 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 -da. And then I'm like, okay, then you live on 3,500 rand a month. So 3,500 rand maybe comes to like $250 a month. Mm -hmm. That's minimum wage, right? So you live on that. And then let's have a conversation. Exactly. So when we start to actually see other people as fully human, I think that that's going to shift us. And in, in the context of conversations about oppression, inequity, et cetera, there's this quote by Paulo Freire. Mm. So Paulo Freire wrote uh, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, a very bulky and dense text. It, it's a very hard text even for me to read. But there's a quote there where he says, the unfortunate burden of the oppressed is to humanize and liberate the oppressor. Oh, my heart. The unfortunate burden of the oppressed is to humanize and liberate the oppressor. And the context is, it is only the oppressed who have the vantage point to see the oppressor, both from where they are standing yeah. and from where they are sitting. And so people who have experienced marginalization, have experienced oppression, 
probably know the oppressors, as it were, better than those oppressors know themselves. Mm-hmm. And so that's where really, like when mm-hmm. people talk about, let's center the voices of the marginalized, like really we should center the voices of the marginalized because they can tell us a whole lot more about ourselves than we than 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 those of us who have power and we all have power and privilege in different forms right but they can tell us a whole lot more about ourselves because of the vantage point from which they view us and so this is where humanizing someone and just saying oh you probably need a lot of the same things that i need that's a game changer for how we can interact with each other whether it's in a corporate space on how we pay people whether it's an education space for how we interact with children of different races and different faiths and different backgrounds, whether it's in a faith context of how we um, uh, invite people to connect to the divine, right? Mm. All of those things, when we start from a place of humanizing and really leaning into like, wow, you probably need the same things I need, that, that breaks immediately any attempt to try and embody a position of supremacy. What a fantastic way to close the conversation. Loveland, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your wisdom, your generosity, your brilliance, your intellect. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Rajkumari Naogi and Loveland Nwadei. Up next, neuroscience educator Sarah Payton returns to talk about healing from emotional trauma and how to create trauma-informed workplaces. Visit us at podcast.ibelong.com for all the ways to watch and listen to our show. You've been listening to Then, Now, and Tomorrow, an I Belong original series produced by Flowship. Today's episode was executive produced by Rajkumari Niyogi, produced by Mike Giordani, edited by Ramiro Gava, mixed by Alex Roses, Original music by Dario Valderrama. Production assistance by Tiari Boutte and Pili Melendez. Thank you so much for tuning in. Mm-hmm.